everybody, welcome back to The Smattering, where we answer the hard questions, the important questions about investing. I'm Jason Hall, joined by my very good friend, the voice of the people, Jeff Santoro. Hey, Jeff. Hey, how are you? I'm excited. We have one of our other, and this is uh, Strong Ideas Held Loosely. Did I say that right? Uh, my friend, that's the idea, held loosely, Lou Whiteman. Hey, Lou. How are you, buddy? I'm good. I'm good. I can't tell you what an honor it is to be on, I think, to be talking to maybe one of the one of the greatest communicators in the investment world I know. And Jason, it's always good to see you, too. So I'm, I'm glad to be here. Well done, Lou. Well done. I, you know, I kind of thought the direction you were going to go with that was you can't say how big of an honor it is because it's not, you know. Hey, well, you know, either one of those statements is true. Anything that yes. gets me off the couch is an honor these days. So, you know. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right, everybody. So those of you that listen to this podcast, are part of maybe kind of the same Twitter ecosystem that we are, are probably familiar with Lou Whiteman. Lou is a colleague of Jeff and myself both, does some writing for The Motley Fool, does a number of things for The Fool as well, besides just, just putting words on on virtual paper. But Lou has a long and really interesting background in history in the investing and finance world. And I don't know that he's really ever talked about it publicly in any other format, but Lou, you're one of the more, more compelling people to me to talk to because you have deep experience and your insight are really good. And also you are a regular individual investor like so many of us. So again, thanks for coming on and thanks for agreeing to have this conversation. Glad to be here. Glad, I, I, definitely a long history. I don't, interesting. I don't know. We'll have to see about that. But uh, yeah. <laughs> well, let's let's start with. I want to talk about kind of two different things. There's there's kind of your personal history. You know where you're from, where you grew up, where you went to school, like all of that stuff. How you got professionally into the investing world, but also kind of your journey as an individual investor. So, where do you want to start? Uh, I mean, I can give you the five minute resume if you want. Yeah, uh, I I don't. I mean, jokes on you guys. I don't think I have much of a a, a resume. So, ha, huh, you're, you're the ones who had me on. But um, so as an investor, I, I I'm the son of an economist who really wanted his son to be an economist, and we lived all over the world. And and so I did. He spent a lot of time drilling into me some of the stuff that you learn into in macro 101 and kind of that was the way I grew up uh I really didn't want to go that route I was I had like seven majors in college uh psychology was probably the the one longest but I I kind of didn't this really want to explain a lot more about you but... yeah yeah I mean I mean probably does I did because of my dad and again it's it's a total just you know, nepotism, nothing is mine. But I, I did do a college internship with an investment manager. I did another with a big commodities advisor, a met person who my boss there ended up running the World Bank, which is was a pretty cool. I mean, not nothing to do with me, so that's not a brag. But uh, but just as far as someone to you weren't you weren't one of one of their references. No, no, no. I don't think I don't think she used me as a reference. She um she was a great. We'll do a separate podcast on her story sometime too. But um, but um, no, but I did sort of have this background. I wasn't really interested in it. I, I kind of just ended up wanting to be a writer. And the only place I could get a job out of college was in financial journalism. So I started there and gradually moved on to more of a active investment banking 
sort of world. And then with a guy, if you ever read Barbarians at the Gate, Bruce Wasserstein was kind of the the, the, the star of that movie, kind of yeah. a, a firm that he started to kind of kind of tried to kind of encapsulate the investment banking world and then gradually moved on to investing with with kind of through buyouts and kind of my my world shifted just because of who I've worked for and then gave it up about five years ago and now I'm just an investor on my own. So your 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 career in overlapping in finance and and your journey as a individual investor I think you told us it started really probably 28 years or so ago. So kind of the mid nineties, we're getting into the run up to the dot-com boom in the mid nineties really. Cause we had that little recession, 91, 92, mm-hmm. things got better. Interest rates have come down just a touch. They come down a lot in the decade prior thinking about current levels there. We probably think they were still crazy high, but as that happened, money started more money started flowing in the Silicon Valley. The internet started to become more of a thing. Let's talk about your experience really from there, from when you really kind of began that professional journey and started investing your own money and just some of your observations and experience. I do think, yeah, I I think the time is important because I do think the investor I am today is sort of built on kind of how I experienced kind of the the three big crashes, I guess, in that time, the dot-com crash, great financial crisis, and then whatever we've been through with COVID and over the last year. And definitely, I mean, I was a very young man in the dot-com craze, and I was definitely part of the FOMO movement. I definitely, I learned all of the wrong lessons in the near term then. And it was, I was in a position where I wasn't dealing with that world at that time. And I was desperately trying to get over to that world because that was all the fun was. And I do think, uh, you know, now almost three decades later, I mean, I think a lot of the ways I look at the world comes from sort of the hard lessons of then. The 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 I'm I'm very skeptical today every time I hear someone say, uh, it's different this time. Or it this is the new thing. And I am very, very skeptical to put permanence on almost anything. I'm never going to be the first adopter now just because of what I've been through. Um, and, and I do think that comes out of the dot-com era, just totally wanting that to be true then and seeing how it turned out. Um, I don't know. I, 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 with the great financial crisis, I don't know if I had learned all the lessons yet. And I was in a point in my life where I wasn't supposed to be investing in individual stocks. I was also stuck in Detroit a couple of months that year trying to, make sure Ford didn't go the way of GM. Uh, so, you know, I was kind of too big. It was too in the middle of it to even have perspective. But I I do think by the time this third one came around and just maybe the whole lead up, th- there's a lot of similarities to the last decade, I think, and the dot-com era. Um, and I do think it definitely living through that has affected how I sort of viewed this last 10 years. Not all for the good. I probably missed out on some good stuff there. But um, look, I, again, I, I'm not going to be the first adapter. I, I will say, if you, even if you were five, ten years late on realizing e-commerce is a thing, you would have done really well as an investor. I, I'm not sure how important it is to be a first mover, but um, certainly that's not going to be me. And a lot of that is kind of what happened in the '90s and what I what I experienced then. So one of the things we had a conversation recently on the podcast about whether it's better to start 
as an investor in a bear market or start in a bull market. And one of the things I was thinking of as you were talking was what was, what did you learn in either the dot-com bubble and burst or the great financial crisis that was like really in your head on both ends of the most recent pandemic induced drop and then recovery, right? So like, as we were in the throes of the pandemic, but then also as we hit that crazy run up from like April or May of 2020, all the way up into the end of 21, really like what was on your mind during those two pieces of the most recent crisis that you kept kind of hearkening back to your previous experiences as like, Oh, this could be similar to that. You know, it's hard to say cause they are, everything is so different, but I, but I think again, just, you know, not to be a broken record, but just the, the, the healthy skepticism is how I, I mean, everybody thinks their skepticism is healthy. Right. But, I, but I do think that I, I, I talk a lot when I write about, um, I, it, it fascinates me and this maybe again is the psych one-on-one, but, uh, most of the world, most everything in the world can be explained kind of using the pendulum analogy. I think everything goes back and forth and, Despite that being true, human beings are just so bad in the moment realizing it's a pendulum. We just really are. And I mean, it, it, it goes well past investing. You know, it, it, it's kind of like every, every bad high school boyfriend, girlfriend drama, you know, like, like on TV, even, you know, but on like relationships, life, you know, we, we are just really, we are careening forward and we feel like it's going to be that way forever, even though we know. And we can sit here today and say all evidence points that everything does just swing violently back and forth. And I do think that that's something that, you know, whether it was dot coms crashing or the banks crashing or whatever happened, just the awareness. And it took me probably until this last few years and dealing with the COVID thing, but it really did help in the early days of COVID where it really felt like. I mean, if you go back to that March, when March 2020, it did feel like that we were just going this way forever to kind of at least have in the back of your mind, but it probably will switch back. And I, so I do think that that's an overriding lesson, kind of much more macro, but much more important than like the individual things. Uh, I, I mean, I, I like I said before, I think there's a huge amount to be learned from kind of look, looking at the 90s and looking at the last decade or so of right back to as Jason, as you said, where it started kind of, um, I, I think the dot-com boom started with the SNL crisis. And I think the current run-up started. Yeah. And that goes, and that goes back crisis. nearly a decade before. Yeah. Um, yeah. Both times. People, both times. One of the, Lou, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on is because again, you're one of the few people in my circle that was kind of actively participating in what was going on in the dot-com run-up and then the crash after. And as time has passed, and I've kind of been able to have a little more clarity, seeing, again, it's more of a rhyme than, than you know, like a direct causatory sort of thing between what happened then and what happened from March 2020, you know, the 23rd, the bottom, through, call it the end of 2021. Like that, but, but just there was so, at some point along the way, you, you saw, so like from that March bottom for the next three months, maybe four months, five months, there were some real deep discount opportunities, but at some point the market had essentially recovered and we were still in the deepest throes of a global recession. 
millions of people around the world literally dying every single day, unsure how we could keep our families safe and not knowing what the path forward from an economic perspective was going to look forward, was going to look like. Yet the entire stock market was revalued as if it was October of 2019 before the pandemic was even a glimmer in anybody's eye. So thinking about, again, the lessons you learned back then, going through a different situation with the, the, and then again, I think this is important too, like thinking about the global financial crisis. And then a lot of ways, everything that happened with the stock market from the, from 2000, like January 10th, somewhere around there, 2000, I think was the roughly the peak for the S and P the NASDAQ 100 peaked a month or so later, but I don't know what, like the actual, now if you don't factor, if you're just looking at you know, total, if you're not looking at total returns and not factoring in dividends, how long did, did the S and P didn't recover for like 15 years, right? Like the actual level of the S and P factor in dividends and you know, it, it bounced back and then it fell again. So in a way it was like a 15 year long ride versus well, like a nine month ride in a lot of ways um, during the, the pandemic. And now it's become like a three-year ride, you know, because so many of those gains, especially for, again, the tech, the this time it's different companies that you talked about, we, here we are. And yeah, the, yeah. Those, the, 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 the fundamental, fundamentals of mathematics and finance have kind of proven true. Yeah. You know, it, I mean, yeah, if you go back to the dot-com boom, too, is what, 15 years for the NASDAQ? Where yeah. where it took to come back, so yeah, you, you know it's yeah it's funny, and I mean it, it said a few times, but you know like like the last ten years and that ten years for one, I do think you know we remember the mania in both cases as the last few years, but it really right. was a long time coming in both cases. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, I would say about a decade. Um, you know, for both kind of you know common theme and kind of this is kind of off but 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 one of the things i think we learned in the dot coms that we forgot in the last decade is is this concept of confusing great ideas for great businesses yeah you know i mean back in the 90s it was the joke was slap dot com on anything right mm -hmm. and it turned you know truth be told selling toys online is a great idea for a lot of reasons, inventory, et cetera, but also parents would love to have this delivered, right? Um, but that was a great idea. It wasn't a great business because the company selling books online could do it just as well and had just as, you know, so. Um, no, no, we found out, you know, it's all, it gets back to those economic modes. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, great idea versus great business. The analogy, I think, to the last 10 years is, and this is almost the same joke as slap.com on anything, is, as a service, right? right, right. You slap that on that. Yeah. And, and I, I, I'll be honest, I think we're still in the early stages of seeing it play out. Hopefully it won't play out the way it played out for eToys a lot. But um, I mean, look at just even Slack being acquired. I, I think there are a lot of companies out there still today that came out of this last boom where it's a good idea. It's a good feature. It's a good product it's not necessarily a good business. And that is the, if there's like one big global universal lesson that we are learning, you know, cut it back to, to what you guys are talking about. Like, what do you learn from them to come, come out of, come today? 
I don't think we're done learning that today. I, I, I still think that process is playing out and it probably gets a bit ugly. And it's, 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 it's really hard to be the skeptic in these times because they are great ideas, you know, <laughs> and it's, it's, it's hard to push back at sometimes because it's, it's, it's going to work out. It's not going to go away. I want to add it, one thing to that real quick. I think it's important is, is I think there's a third level to that. There's the difference between a good idea and a good business. And a lot of times those good ideas become business, good businesses, but even good businesses don't necessarily make for good individual stocks. Right. And I think that's the key is even finding something that maybe can prove it can stand on its own legs as a business. That's fine. But that doesn't mean just because you love the product or it's great and it does awesome stuff all of the economics and valuation and all that stuff is going to work out that it needs to be in your portfolio. Well, right? and I was going to add to that because the thing I was thinking, Lou, is you were talking about there was really a decade that led to the dot-com bust and it was really a decade or more that led to whatever this last pandemic-induced sort of thing and then what we're living through now. The other thing I was thinking of that sort of led to this current one is the zero interest rate policy that we had through the last, you know, 10 plus years. Cause in my mind, as we think about good ideas that necessarily aren't good businesses or maybe good businesses that aren't necessarily good investments as, you know, individual stocks, a lot of that in my mind comes down to so many companies were able to come public and raise capital for free, um, that are now, now struggling because money is no longer free. So I don't know if you have any thoughts about how much that added to like what we lived through for the last couple of years. Oh, I mean, definitely. And I mean, it sort of happened. That's sort of what fueled the very early ages, days of the um, of the dot com boom, too. But yeah, we to you know, I mean, I, I I think we're seeing this on the on on the macro level. But you know, as an individual investor, we sort of became dumb to the value of money. Okay, we did not assign value to money anymore, and that's that's kind of a very weird way to describe inflation, but where, you know, your money is literally becoming worthless. But that is sort of what has played out with a lot of these tech stocks is that when money is free, when we don't value money, we don't value or we don't we don't worry about companies burning that money. We don't. So, I mean, uh, yeah, a lot of it. And, and you know, like I say, I, I, I don't know if what's happened in the last few years is due to the pandemic. I think, Jeff, to your point things were weird for a long time. If anything, the pandemic might have delayed it or given us a nice extra boost. Um, we can get into it in a second, but I think one of the great contradictions of this past time versus the dot-com is none of people were involved. <laughs> Too many people missed out on it, in part because it was such a spectacular ride. Um, but we were just living in this weird fairy tale world for a while where Money was worthless. We didn't care if it burned. We didn't care if our investments actually earned money because, again, money is worthless. Um, that's a weird place to be. And that was something that wasn't going to be sustainable, whether COVID came out of China or not. Yeah. Yeah, I can't I, remember which company it is. It, it maybe it's it may be Asana. If it's not Asana, it's another one of those kind of cloudy, growthy, cash burn sort of companies. But I can't remember which one it is, but I was looking through their 10K at their at their balance sheet and they've got like a billion, there was a billion dollars in debt. I'm like, they're burning through cash. They've got cash, but where's this billion dollars of debt and how much is it costing them? And it's 0% interest for like nine years. 
<laughs> this is a company that's burning hundreds of millions of dollars a year. And like, it's not clear what their cash burn trajectory is going to be. And somebody agreed to loan them a billion dollars at zero. It's convertible debt. But again, there's, there's no expected return except for the company winning when you have those sorts of things. And I think that Lou, that to me is like exemplifies what you were talking about as, you know, attaching some sort of actual value to money. And for me, like to the individual investor side, and I just listened to a podcast. I want to encourage both of you guys to listen to and our listeners too. It's, I just listened to the episode. It's hidden, hidden brain. Uh, the episode was called the snowball effect. And it's talking about like how things go viral and they used like they're actually talking about like viruses like how viruses actually spread but then the term things going viral looking at like social movements and that kind of stuff and one of the things they talk about was twitter like a lot of people view like twitter kind of taking off into the mainstream when oprah winfrey did a show about it and they went from 28 million users to i don't know some ungodly amount within a matter of months after she went onto the platform and actually did a show about it, but the, on the show, they, t they kind of picked that apart and pointed out the 28 million users that they had built before that and how it, you know, there's that initial resistance to an idea of, of something like, that's not going to happen. The Donald Trump's presidential campaign is another example that, you know, the, the, the Republican party, kind of the mainstream interest thought this was just a big joke. And it's funny how those things, and I think the value of money and risk and all that kind of thing, I think it's the same thing that happens. It's like there's that initial resistance, and then all it takes is a few people buying into something, and that snowball gets that critical mass, right? Um, but it takes a lot of people to kind of get to that point, and it is really interesting to me how this has happened. Lou, my question for you, you mentioned, you know, it's a hard time to be a skeptic. Um, I finally figured out in talking to Jeff when we were planning to have you on, it kind of crystallized for me finally that, that you're, I view you as your investing superpower um, as being a, a, a skeptical optimist. Is that a, what do you, is that a good way to describe you? I like that. I like that because then I can get away with anything, right? Um, <laughs> so, yeah. So, you know, I, I mean, uh, full disclosure, I do not, I in my path, but I, maybe I had, but I do not do anything short. I do not do puts. I didn't do anything of that. So I, I am, I, by definition, almost an optimist because I am in, in my investing life, I am betting. I only make bets that things go up and, you know, parts, partially that's lazy. And we can talk about that later, but it, especially these last few years and with the world we're living in now, I lazier, the better when you're an investor. So, it, you know, part of it's that it's, it's, I don't want to sit around a computer and check my shorts every day. Uh, but part of it is, is that I, you know, I, there's so much to bet on. You don't have to bet against, I think, which is I, I the definition of optimism. Um, but again, you know, the skeptical part, I, I, we talked about it before, but you know, um, I may be coming of an age where firsthand seeing how foolish lowercase f for the, if, uh, that you can look when you're, when you're saying it's different this time. I do think that they, again, I, I, I think I have maybe an over heightened sense of skepticism and, you know, much to my losses, 
I mean, you know, for a lot of reasons, I, I, I can say today that I have never owned Tesla and feel good about it because Elon Musk is doing whatever he's doing today on Twitter. I, I, I either to Twitter or on Twitter or to Twitter on Twitter. But, but Hey, look, I, I looked at that S one. I had to analyze that S one. And I, 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 so I got that way wrong. All right. So, because this was before you knew what the, you know, this is well before uh, divers in, in Southeast Asia, you know, and just on the merits of the business, I said, eh, now. And so that's, I mean, so, so that's skeptic. So, so sometimes skepticism can, you know, can be your downfall. It would have been very nice to have seen the light back then. But yeah, so in the near term, again, I am not going to be that first adopter. I am going to be skeptical in the near term, optimistic in the long term. I guess is how I would put together skeptical optimists because I do, I see plenty to bet on. I, we are so much better off now than we were. And I, I see great things up ahead. Well, the history map supports you on this Lou, because two things we, we know, we know that the stock market tends to go, like if you just measure the number of days over the past century, the market has gone up about 70% of those days, two thirds, between 60 and 70% of those days, the market has gone up. And over time, the math is pretty obvious that it's gone up far more as long as you've remained invested. The other part of the math is that the average stock kind of sucks, you know? So kind of being that skeptic on the front side, so it makes you be more selective, but then being the optimist over the long term, worst ways to go. Yeah. What I keep, what I keep thinking about is well, it's actually like two sort of things I've heard like Warren Buffett say. So basically you, Lou, you're basically like Warren Buffett in my mind. Absolutely. Um, yeah. That's what everyone always says. No, but like the whole idea that, you know, you, the idea that you should always bet on America or bet on capitalism. Right. And, and to your point, Jason, like if you just look at the, the S and P 500s chart over its history, it goes up and to the right, you know, yes, there's dips and valleys and stuff, but it goes, but then there's the other the other quote of like you don't have to swing at every pitch, um, and that that's what I'm hearing in what you're saying, Lou. Like you can be an optimist, you can generally feel like there's a lot of good out there that you can invest in and bet on that will do good for the world and go up as an investment. But it doesn't have to be every single thing, and that's where the skepticism comes in to to keep you from you know buying every single stock because you know you're going to catch some losers in there too but the, the, one thing i it's slightly off topic but the swing on the pitch because there's, there's another way to look at this analogy that i love and um i've been thinking about writing about this actually but uh and you guys know i'm i'm spending a little time dealing with high school athletics now too on the side and one thing kind of the comparison or the contrast between that net and um investing we not all our teams are world beaters at this high school, but we have to play the teams on our schedule, even if it's a thumping. You know, we have to play the region out, even if, oh, do we really have to play these guys? You don't have to do that in investing. You can end up world champion by skip and skip half the games and say crypto for me. Crypto, I don't. I'm, crypto may be amazing. I won't be there. Okay, I'm just sitting that one out. Crypto is not on my schedule. I get to set my schedule. I don't have to go get walloped there when, you know, when it's out of my league. You can, you know, it, it, it's it's a weird thing with the comparing to sports, but in sports, you just got to go suck it up, whether you're better or worse, and just play out the schedule. Investing, pick your games, pick your fights, 
and you'll do just fine. And you can have as just as good, probably better than someone who just fight every fight or have a dog in every fight. You know, I mean, I think that's an amazing, and it kind of gets back. People talk about this is the one thing that amateurs can do better than professionals in some cases. Part of it is, is that to write your own rules, find your own games and just play those. And you can't do that in most things in life, but that's uh, you know, it's a kind of, I don't know, just pick your pitches to swing at kind of reminded me of that, but um, that's, that's a great advantage. And, you know, it's easy for me to say, because I, 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 if you go on my Twitter, I'm, I, I have an opinion on everything. So, you know, uh, but, uh, that doesn't mean no, I'm going to invest no all. to that, Lou. There's no right, 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 right. You know, on the cost, you, I don't, I don't have to have an, I don't have to invest in that opinion on everything. And it, it's actually a really, really neat skill to figure out in investing is, you know, write your schedule as favorably, as favorably as you want it. The other thing I think about too, is it's hard to be, it's hard to be too late to a great business. Like to your earlier point about not being a, an early adopter to everything. And you, if, if you're, if you find your way into a generationally great business, you can get into it pretty late, late in air quotes compared to like when it IPO'd or whatever, and still make a lot of money. If you bought any of the big winners over the past decades, a two, three, five, seven, eight years into their existence as a company, you still did pretty well. And I think that can help fight some of that like FOMO and, and the, the feel to get the, the, the feel like you ha have to get in at the very beginning in order to like really make your money. From memory, and I usually, I, I hate when people use Amazon because it's such the outlier, but from memory, Amazon IPO'd in 1997. I don't have it in front of me now, but if you would have bought in- 2004 was a very, very good time to be buying Amazon. Right, well, that, forget it, Jason. Buy in 2007. I bet you you're doing yeah. fine. Do do the True. full decade after the IPO. True, yeah. Um, and now again, may they all be Amazon, but, uh, you know, right. but, um, right. you know, so it's kind of a weird, but, but Jeff, that's your point. You're exactly right. You know, I mean, if it's, if it's a good enough business, if it's a good enough idea, you don't have to be the first one to figure it out. It, it, it it's fun at cocktail parties, but other than that, it, and who goes to cocktail parties? It's 2023. So well, I want to, I want to talk a little bit more about this because I think it's really important. Jeff, you mentioned FOMO and when Lou was kind of talking about, you know, writing your own schedule of, of the games that you're, you're going to play, the, the competition you're going to compete with. I think that's really important. And Jeff and I have been kind of kicking around the idea of doing a show where we talk a little bit more about this idea of really figuring out what game you're trying to play, right? What, what are your goals? What are your incentives? And this came from a, a tweet I did recently talking about following the money. And the idea of understand if you really want to understand a person's motivations, if you want to understand a leader's motivations, you want to understand a manager's motivations, understand their economic incentives, right? Figure out where the financial incentives lie, and you're going to have a far better understanding of why they behave the way that they behave. Um, and you're also going to find out when they're going to behave in your best interest as an investor is entirely when your economic incentives align with theirs and not the other way around. And, but I think it's important. I started thinking about this and I was texting Jeff about it and I did the Charlie Munger invert, always invert with that same idea, thinking about all of the studies that have been done. Dalbar does this great study they released. I think that they're still doing it every year and they've been doing it for 25 plus years at this point that looks at investor performance in different asset classes, not the performance of the asset class, 
but how did the investors do in those assets? And without fail, the people do worse than, than whatever the asset class. So if it's large cap stocks or small cap or growth or whatever the bucket is, the arbitrary bucket is, individual investors as a cohort always fuck it up every single time. And I think a lot of it gets back to exactly what Lou and Jeff were talking about with you're playing somebody else's game, right? And how do you do worse? You always buy at the top when that snowball, think again, thinking about, I really encourage everybody listen to that episode of Hidden Brain Snowball. It just, I mean, it just came out a week or so ago because it's going to help you wrap your mind around how these things happen, right? How you get caught up in them. And if you start figuring out what your incentives are, then you can start laying out your schedule, picking the games you're going to play, whether that's individual stocks you buy or, or the ETFs that you own and, and building your CD ladder or bonds or whatever you're doing, like that whole holistic thing, figure out the games that you can play to have the best record you can possibly have when you get to the end of your season, whether that's sending your kid to college or that's retiring or finally doing the stupid thing and buying a boat, which I don't know why anybody would ever do that. Just go find a rich person and get to be good friends with them that owns a boat. And that's the way to do it. Especially if you live 600 miles from the water too, but yeah, anyway, well, separate. <laughs> dude, there's some great lakes um, in the Atlanta metropolitan area. I just sure. want to tell All you. right. <laughs> there's some great lakes. So, well, so, I, I, I like what yeah. you just said, Jason, because it makes me think about the idea of like, well, first is like, what's your goal? Right. We've talked about that before too. Like it is your goal to have like the great cocktail story, cocktail party story of the great investment you made, or is your goal to have enough money to retire with? So like, that's the first thing. But then the other piece of it too is, is like I, the way I've phrased it before is like paying attention to the bottom total line of your brokerage statement and not the individual stocks in it. Cause that's really what it's about. Cause that that's where you see the value of owning whatever the two or three mega winners that swallow up the losses of all the things that you weren't right about. Lou, let's, let's talk a little bit about, you know, the, the lessons that you've learned over your time, uh, in the, in the industry, working for different organizations and different disciplines and doing different things, things kind of in with like in finance, right. Kind of the wall street brands in a way. And then the things you've done more on the individual investor facing side. And then the third layer of that, of course, is you as a person with financial goals and your investing journey. I just like to talk a little bit about some of the lessons that you've learned and how it's impacted how you, how you invest. So the first thing that comes to mind, I won't repeat everything you said, Jason, but uh, I, it's so true, you know, understand motivations and understand the game you play up the Morgan Housel is so great on this, but you know, I mean, if the, everybody going on CNBC is talking about the next three months, because that's what they're told to talk about. You know, uh, if you want to know why volume spikes at the end of the quarter, it's because you want to make sure that you are showing the world your best portfolio. And that's, it's hindsight capital management. I call it, you know, like, right, like right. this and is what happened. The losers and move more yes. money into the winners. Yes. If, if Amazon was up 50% in the quarter, it is as a money manager for me, it would be smart for me to buy Amazon on the last day of March. So I can show everyone that I was in Amazon during that time. Even though you Even, were only in it for right, right, because weeks. that's how I'm going to make my pie bigger and the way I get paid. So all of that so true, 
And if you ignore that, and if you think that everybody is discussing things on a three-month basis, we talk, we've talked about this a lot, Jason, just kind of uh, with some of the, the banks and stuff, with everything that's happening with interest rates. Without a doubt, that hurts those businesses for the next three, six, nine months. And some of them, especially if you know they did stupid things with their asset book, could be fatal, as we found out. But there are a lot of companies that, yeah, lousy next nine months, great next 10 years. That's when you can play your own game. So that, so definitely that's true. The other thing, and you know, I was thinking about this knowing I was coming on. You know, so a lot of what I did, like early days, it was kind of on the on the journalism side, and then kind of moving over. One competitive advantage that I've had in my life is I have had a chance to talk to a lot of the decision makers as, and sometimes before they're making decisions. You know, whether it's CEOs with M&A and all that, but um, I will tell you, and again, we know this, but we don't really think about it. Every time someone makes a decision, it's a lot more complicated than hot take idiots like me on Twitter are going to say it is, or you're going to see on Bloomberg television or the one line headline, even if it's true, like. In a bid to modernize, Disney goes into streaming. You know what? Yeah, I mean, that is correct. But there's a whole lot more that went into it than that. People are complex. Decisions are complex. And these, you know, the, the people making these decisions, it's months and months of, if anything, over analysis goes into every decision. And so I think it's really helpful as an observer of these things and as someone who maybe acts on these things or tries to think big picture to these things to kind of just keep that humility that that everything is almost always a lot more complicated than the soundbite than even your quick knee jerk even your oh they're doing this because of that i mean on the surface you could be right but there's still so much going on to try to think that thing through one thing and again maybe this is the uh, i it was too late for me i would have really enjoyed behavioral economics in in college if if such a thing existed back then and and i do think i'm sort of anchored to the psychology in a lot of my investing and a lot of what I think about economics. But I think to try to understand that even, even if you disagree with a decision or even if you think, and you know, gosh, this works in politics too, doesn't it? But um, almost all things that, that, that to try to get inside the head of the actors and to try to think about the motivations of everything involved, I think you can get really, really better insight into what is going on than just even your own knee jerk. And, 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 and I think if there's anything yeah, I've learned through my career, it's just to really try to think things through. I, I drive my wife crazy with this, by the way, because on a personal level, like uh, this person's an idiot. And why does, uh, well, maybe there's, you know, that's the last thing you want to do in those moments, right? But, but I, and, and, you know, sometimes it just makes me, sometimes I am an idiot for doing it. But, but I do think it's helpful in most areas of life to just try and step almost out of the picture, look at the actors and think about what's driving them to do things. And then you can get a much clearer picture of what's going on and maybe an idea of whether or not it'll be successful. I think, I think thinking about that, Lou, I think there's, you run, you run a bit of a, so let, let me kind of rephrase that in a way. And let me see what you think about this. I think maybe the important take for me is at the very least, you have to acknowledge that it's not just a binary thing and that there's, it's more complicated, but how do you, how do you think about 
avoiding making the mistake of, of investing too much time that doesn't necessarily lead you to a better outcome for yourself as an investor by focusing too much on the complexity versus maybe trying to figure out how you can simplify it down into a digestible way that can help you make a better decision with that information or even maybe moving on because it's, it's not even worth investing the time in. How do you, how do you think about that? See, I think it's a mindset for me. I, I don't know if I can do that. And I don't think I, but for me, seeing the complexity allows me to simplify. You know, I mean, it, 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 to me, it's a safer way to do it than to just start simple and go with it. But um, but I, I, because when we oversimplify, that's when we miss the important stuff and we get it wrong. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the analogy I would use is sort of like, if you look at a huge complex machine, it might not make sense, but it, maybe if you saw the blueprint, you could work through it and figure it out. And you're actually are simplifying something by looking at the blueprint. That's sort of, I, I mean, for me, the only way to kind of get the, the, the clear simple is to at least burn the energy to spend the time to think of it complex and then break it down. I, that to me is a much more effective way to do it than to start with the, you know, start with the simple and work there. But, but I do think like, look, I, I do think for most things, if you want to be serious about it, you can't be, I, I mean, I love talking about I'm boring. I love talking about lazy, but you can't be a tourist if you want to do this. Like most things you do need to take the time uh, you need to get to a simple thing so you don't overwhelm yourself. But I, I, I do think you need to to spend that energy, to spend the time to really understand what's going on, to really make sense of things, to profit from it. And sometimes you're still going to get it wrong. That's Absolutely. It Absolutely. It, well, going back to the conversation about incentives, well, I think the challenging part is that we live in a, we live in a hot take world of black and white, but everything about investing is gray. And I think that's what you were saying, Lou, like there's, there's nuance in all of these decisions that CEOs are making, but we are like everything around us in the media and in, in the world of investing is, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think? And, it, and they want an answer and it's either this or it's that. And I, I think like you do have to put the work in, but that the work is not to come to necessarily like a right or wrong decision, but to like navigate your way through that gray area. Like that's yeah. where the, that's where the time and effort needs to be spent. And then I find myself often getting to the end of that, like, and just being like, I, I still don't know, <laughs> you know, like, cause I don't have all the information, but you just sort of have, you have to sort of like, at some point, either make a decision to do something or not. I think that's where like, um, being slow to make decisions can actually be an advantage, right? Like, because it is, it, it is nuanced. You don't always have to rush to a decision. Sometimes if you're thinking of selling, waiting two weeks is the right call um, or vice versa. If you're thinking of buying, sometimes waiting too. Mm -hmm. And, one, and of the, you know, one of the smartest things I've ever, I've ever heard about decision-making. I think I've talked about it before on the show, Jeff, but I heard this from Tom Gardner who heard it from someone else. But he talked about thinking about decision-making as a doorway and there, there are doorways that you can go through and then you can just turn around and go right back through and there's zero cost, right? And there's doors that you go through and you're in, right? There's no, like the, 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 the process of getting back to the other side of that door, you know, you, you, there's a lot of stuff you have to do to get around there and thinking about decisions in the same way is the decisions that have very low risk and like the, the, the potential hazard of making a bad decision and, un, and unmaking that decision. 
to make those decisions as fast as you can. Like as soon as you come to a decision, make the decision, because if it's wrong, you can change it and everything's fine. Right. Versus those decisions that once you make them, there are significant implications if you screw it up. And, and Lou, I think that that's, that's the thing. And, and the reason I'm bringing this up is because I think Jeff, you were talking about being slow to make these decisions. I see so many people, you invest your capital into that process of exploration. You're researching a stock idea. You're investing tons of time. You're reading, you've read the last three 10 Ks. You've looked at their two biggest competitors and maybe all of the evidence is I need to say no, but you've, you have like this false investment um, that you, that now you think you have to act on that information. Okay. Well, okay. I've put all this work in. I'm just going to buy a little bit, right? Even though everything is told you, this is a bad idea. Making that decision more slowly is probably the smart, smart way to go. And I would just add now more than ever, uh, you know, I mean, we were talking about how the world has changed since I was doing it. And, um, you know, part of the reason I think I've evolved towards lazy in my investing is, is just because of this. I mean, it, we know this, but just kind of quick story. My first, one of my first internships, uh, they had a Bloomberg machine, but it hardly ever worked for some reason. When we wanted stock quotes at the end of the day, we called a one nine hundred number. And kids, you can Google this. It used to be that you dialed a one nine hundred. It's like eight hundred, but you had to pay like three ninety nine a minute. Wall Street Journal had a service one nine hundred something, and we would type in to keypad, you know, like whatever B R K, and get the Berkshire quote for the end of the day. That was how I mean, forget Yahoo Finance or whatever, or on your phone. That was the way we would get you know people in the industry. At so times. you could still get stock quotes on your phone. Well, yes, you could. You could. It was just it, there was a cord attached to it. Right. I guess it was three ninety nine plus a dollar yeah. twenty five a minute. Right. But, Something but, like but, that. Yeah, but compare. And I remember someone saying this: like, imagine if there had been how fun Twitter would have been during the Great Financial Crisis. And now, but I mean, but now more than ever, I love FinTwit. I more than anyone in this conversation, I I get sucked into it, and you know the kind of the contradictions of life. Um, but you know, being in the moment amplifies the short-term thinking, amplifies it. The, just this in-the-moment thinking, in-the-moment have to do something. Part of the reason that I've gotten more boring or more lazy in my investing life is just because fads and conventional wisdom are broadcast so loud and so nonstop. I think you have to even be less inclined to act on it. You have to get slower to balance out the faster barrage of hitting it. So now more than ever, just that slow to act makes sense to me just because I, you know, it's, it's, you're constantly being thrown the weapon to shoot. yourself. You know, I mean, you know, I yeah, mean, it's, well, yeah. and that's the thing because depend, depending on, you know, the, 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 your feed and the, you cultivate this over time, right? You build it and the algorithm learns and they feed other stuff into it you can end up with being inundated with this information where the stupidest things in the world sound completely reasonable, right? Because that's all you hear. I'm going to say it again, because I think it's so relevant to the show. Go listen to snowball that hidden brain episode, because everything we've talked about helps explain like the social impacts of how we're wired and how this shit will fuck you up. Jeff, I know you're going to have a hard time editing that out, but I wanted to say it in visceral, visceral terms because it's real. Lou, we're gonna we're gonna take a break here. We're gonna if you can stick around for a few minutes. You also happen to be our resident 
expert on an area of the stock market that we want to, a uh, certain industry we want to talk to you about. You hang around? Sure. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right, everybody. Welcome back. It's uh, time to play Explain This to Me Like I'm Five. Defense stocks. <laughs> So imagine if I gave you the opportunity to invest in an industry that has just one customer and that customer telegraphs its purchasing plan nearly a decade in advance. This customer also has the ability to print its own money to pay its bills. Okay. And the customer has stated that it has a vested interest in the survival of every one of the companies in the field. So we'll allocate capital in such a way to make sure all mouths are fed. Is that of interest to you? Tell me more. Sounds fantastic. It's cheating, right? So guys, I've told this story before, but I back in the, the, the Back in the dot-com boom, when everybody, I told you, I was FOMOing, and I would spend a lot of time with the Northern Virginia Venture Capital Association because everybody, that was that time when everyone was Silicon something, you know, Silicon Alley in New York or whatever, and, and everywhere was going to be dot-com everything. And these defense companies, the so-called Beltway Bandits, if you, if you ever drive from Motley Fool headquarters out to Dulles Airport, every building has a Beltway Bandit on the side of it. You know, all these defense contractors, they were all at these meetings and they were literally the, 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 the uncool kid in the side that couldn't get a dance partner. Everybody was just sort of rolling their eyes. In D.C. of all places, the government was uncool. Fast forward three years. Anyone that still survived of those cool kids had either been bought by a defense contractor and had or had pivoted to defense because, hey, they pay their bills. Right. So that is what this industry is. Um, you know, I, I'm being a little sarcastic, but after the Cold War, the whole so-called peace dividend, one of the things that was done was the number of defense contractors, the primes went from about 15 to about five because we didn't need guns anymore because the Cold War was over. The Pentagon is now going through a period of like, oh, my gosh, we only have two shipbuilders. Oh, my gosh, we only have two companies that can maybe design the next bomber or something like that. The Pentagon really, really is doing their best to make sure everybody is healthy and nobody gets consolidated down, which is a great thing to invest in. There is downside here. I mean, A, there is the whole moral thing. You know, I mean, I, I would love to invest in a world without war without conflict where we don't need these things. I don't think as an investor, that's a reasonable bet. So, but I mean, you are, there are people who object to these things because, um, you know, it's, it's a nasty business. Yeah. Second, there are well, limits. The, the reality is that the, these, these systems that we, that are used for defense are yes. also the systems that are used for offense too. Yes. Yes. Um, you know, they all move in tandem. Sometimes and many times it's countercyclical, so that's actually a neat thing about it. But it, they are hard. It is hard to really day trade these. And in fact, we've seen defense stocks kind of come into vogue in the last year or so as other things have gone out because of some of these good things. 
I, I hope anyone who's buying now isn't buying with the plan and selling in a few years. I do think these are as close to set it and forget it companies as you can get. Um, you know, they do, there is limits to how much this customer is going to buy, even though as a taxpayer, it may not feel like it. You don't, I mean, for practical reasons, you don't see these companies. One of the core competencies of this industry is their ability to deal with the government customer. That is a very, very hard thing to do. And we've seen it time and time again, like Lockheed Martin trying to sell their IT services to commercial customers, and they fall on their face because they don't understand those customers. How many companies have tried to come in and sell to the government and has end up partnering or selling out that unit to one of these companies? Because that is, it is hard to deal with the government. It's really hard to take what you've learned selling to the government and sell it to. So, so there's limits to expansion. Um, and, I mean, we could get into Palantir, but 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 I I, I think there's, there's no no we're there's, not going to do that. Okay, there's, yeah yeah there's, there's a caution there, but we won't go there. Um, if you want to find trends in this, and I think one of the real interesting things for the for the last fifty years or so, or the first fifty years after World War II, the core competency, the the thing that they did other than being able to deal with the government is the ability to just bend big pieces of metal in ways others can't. The ability to build a battleship was a rare thing. That's become, metal bending is becoming more commoditized. Nowadays, you want to be the electronics, the tech inside of these ships. Uh, a great example of this is a company called Huntington Ingalls, which is basically, I mean, most of North, the Norfolk, Virginia area. They run our nuclear, um, they are our nuclear ca capabilities, basically, as far as the ocean. General Dynamics will make submarines, but these are the ones that make the aircraft carriers, most of our fleet. Uh, increasingly, companies that have never built a boat are taking hulls built by Huntington Ingalls, putting electronics in it, and a company like Lido's Holdings will sail a ship that they didn't build from San Diego to, to Hawaii and back with no crew on it. So what you're telling me, Lou, this is what I'm hearing, is that this time it's different. And we this time it's different. Military as a service stop. Yes. 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 Well, no, 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 that's a great point, but it is interesting because, you know, it is just where the margin is. This more is a chase. And that's margin. the important thing to understand is because, you know, if you think about kind of like the other side of like all the good things you talked about being, you know, one of those, I don't know, a couple dozen total and really like the core is probably less than 10, like the companies that like they're, they're, they're the lion's share of the spending that's the biggest line item of one of the biggest departments of the federal government. Like the good part of that is that the, the downside is it's only going to grow so much, right? We know right. that it's, it's basically going to grow at roughly probably the size of the economy, right? Over time. And that's, you know, what GDP is going to grow. And that's basically it. So it's very, very low growth. And the, 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 the consolidation boom that has benefited the, the big players that have become bigger and bigger. That again, like you said, Lou, that's basically over for the most part because the, among the top tier, certainly yes. among the top tier, right? Because yeah. it, it's at a point where there's not enough competition and there needs to be more competition. And so anyway, thinking about how do you, how do you evaluate which of these, if you're interested in investing in the de department, <clears throat> one of these defense contractors, and you, you don't necessarily just want to buy an ETF, which I'm, they're out there, but you, you have money to put to work and you're ready to invest in, in defense. How do you evaluate the opportunities 
and, and know when is it time? Okay. This is a pitch that I need to swing at, or do I just, I need to leave the stadium, but how do you think about that? So I'll, I'll use a dated example now, so it doesn't look like a recommendation, although we can talk about the current if you'd like, but um, for a better part of a decade, and it took a long time to play out because it took a better part of a decade, but uh, General Dynamics, one of the big companies in this field, they have uh, shipbuilding, they have most of the land systems, and then they have a huge IT business. Uh, they are one of the only so-called primes you've heard of that is still in government services IT. Um, they badly lagged the other primes, the Lockheed Martins, the Northrop Grumman's, uh, those companies, Raytheon, because they own Gulfstream. And if you go back to the great financial crisis, what was every corporate CEO shamed for? Their private jet. Having a private jet. And, and the private jet business, which you'd be shocked at how few private jets actually sell each year. So it is a business where if you lose 20 orders a year, you feel it. Uh, it took basically a decade to recover. It took until some of these just, we had to start retiring the fleets. It was a no growth industry. And General Dynamics got hit hard by that. And it's only started to play out in the last few years. But I that was an opportunity where the, the macro, the big picture trends of the defense contractors, they were moving together during this time that that was their sequestration was in there. There was the beginning of the Russian war. You know, like you can trace them all together on kind of the big picture stuff. But this was one company that you could get at a better valuation because Gulfstream was just laying eggs left and right. And so if you believed, and I did, that eventually the CEO, the CEOs weren't going to start flying coach. Um, it was an opportunity. So there are times eventually when either Gulfstream's business is going to come back or they're going to divest it. And yes, yes. The market's going to focus on the core value of, of its and, and, and that's played out pretty well. And it's, by the way, it's much easier to do this with this sector because you, you were being paid three or 4% yield back when that mattered to wait, right? Because all of these are pretty good dividend players. And they did have a great submarine business and the land system business and the dividend was never, um, you know, you can get, you can get hurt by that too. It would be easy right now to make that same case with Boeing. And it might turn out that you could with Boeing because they're rather large commercial aviation division of their own. Um, the secular tailwinds look pretty good for that business if they can yeah. get out of their own way. Yeah. Um, as as our friend Nick Scott says, he really looks like what Gen what GE was for a decade. So you know, but be so be careful. But those are. Boeing is a good example. Another one would be L3 Harris, which is just below that prime, trying to get to that prime right now of just to look at to see if you have an example of what we saw with General Dynamics back then. And that is if you want to kind of pick winners there among the primes, that is the way I think of it. Like who is on sale right now and why? And what do I think of that reason? Is that a buying opportunity? Uh, if you go down a level, there's a lot of speculative, crazy, could be the next big thing. I mean, one that's a favorite on Twitter is uh, Kratos Defense and Security, which is just a wild little company. And they could be the next big thing and they could be, you know, so, so you do have a lot more volatility down there. But among the big primes, the one thing I'd beg someone, beg you guys, if you do buy it, as close as you have to a set it and forget it pile, do that. Because these things make more sense over a 30-year period than they do over a five-year period. 
And I know we say that about all stocks, but I really, really mean it. With all of those conditions, almost too big to fail, with a reliable customer, with all of this going for them, it really is almost the the closest thing in my mind to just buying the index fund is to buy these primes. So I was going to ask that question. Do you, if someone's interested in, maybe they've heard this and they're like, this makes perfect sense. This is a no brainer and part of the, you know, investing universe to be a part of in some way, what would you, what would you advise? I mean, you're not giving advice here, but like, is it smart to pick just the primes and buy yourself a little basket? Is it smart to buy an ETF? Would you say it's worth putting the time in to decide which of the primes might be in the better spot right now? Like, how would you say like brand new to this part of the investing world, stepping into it, people should proceed? So I, I, I haven't looked recently, so I don't want to call them out, but the last time I looked the, the primary defense ETF index, I has some weird stuff in it. Otherwise I do think it's, it's, it's made for an ETF thing, but I, I don't like the particular index that everybody because it it has airlines in it it has all sorts of stuff in it um even though it is the defense i do think you can make a pretty good case and depending on how much capital you want to put to work of just buying a basket of the quote big three big four whatever um especially defense i boeing is just its own separate discussion i think because commercial is so big there uh but lockheed northrop general dynamics and um today it's raytheon technologies because they merged with uh, UTX. Um, you know, I, I do love certain parts. I mean, there's there's a business that I've talked about a trillion times and I'm, I'm not, not a buy recommendation today, but gosh, you should have bought it 10 years ago and it might be a recommendation today. Transdime, the most boring company in the world. They make parts, parts, and that's supposed to be a commoditized thing, but they are so well managed that I mean, it's 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 thousands of percent over a decade as you return. Uh, so there, you can put together a basket of like I for me of like a few of the primes, say the Transdime of the world. If you want to get cute about it, maybe some of the finance companies uh, that are involved here. Definitely some of the Beltway Bandits, uh, Booz Allen Hamilton, uh, Lados Holdings. Uh, they, there's a big list there too of just try and get like four or five of these, put it together and let it go. I, I would bet you will do real well. And uh total return basis. I'd bet over time you beat the market. Lou, people can find you on Twitter show notes. They we're going to have your Twitter handle down there, but you also have another thing that you're doing. We haven't really talked about very much fits and starts. Let's take just a second. Talk about fits and starts before we, before we wrap up. I lost a bet. Oh, no, wait, no, you want me to know. Um, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's as anyone who has listened this far can tell is that I, I like to just sit back and opine. And um, this is a kind of a way as maybe a frustrated writer who should have gone a different path 35 years ago and tried writing. It's, it's a way to sort of get a wide variety of thoughts out there. It's a newsletter. It's, it's free. Um, and it's my thoughts on the market and, whatever else, Bono, uh, whatever else is on my mind. And it's kind of just something that's having fun with. And I'd encourage everyone to come find it and get in touch with me and yell at me about, cause it's, it's sort of a way to have a little more nuanced conversation than 140 characters with that, but, but just trying to sort of do what you do on Twitter, which is kind of just articulate whatever's on your mind. So 
uh, I encourage people to. I've read every every one that you drop once or twice a week. They'll come out. They're well, well worth it. Useful, help you figure out how to think about these hard questions. I think it's one of the most valuable things. So, in addition, Lou, in addition to being on Twitter again, that'll be in the show notes and a link to fits and starts as well. You mentioned earlier in the beginning of the show that you're spending more time lately doing some volunteer work at a local um, uh, school, and um, it's a nonprofit too. And I wanted to give you a chance to, to to pitch a little bit of what you're doing there and maybe ask folks if they've got a little bit of spare money they'd like to contribute to continue to support that. So I'm going to throw you a curveball. I'd love to talk about that, but I also want to nominate because I wouldn't nominate this school for your, your contest, but I have a great other charity for uh, f- for your contest too. So okay. real quick, uh, the, it, the, the school is called Notre Dame Academy. It's in Duluth, Georgia, and it really, really needs all the money you can get because it is a private school operating in America. Um, I That is in all of my fits and starts. I would love, don't do anything with athletics. It's a, they have me, they don't need anything else, but uh, just the general school. Yeah, so I, I gave money to the, to the arts and music fund. And here's my request people. And I really, this is really important. If, if you if you find it in your heart and your wallet to contribute, please put Lou Whiteman is a great big nerd in the comments. Just, Absolutely. Just do that. Absolutely. We had a recent that. person who gave based on that who did not put that, that it, it would be really special to me if they had. But uh, you know, anyway, move on real quick. One more, guys. I imagine because, you know, we talked about a life well lived in this. Imagine if you growing up, you have a thing for animals. You love animals, but your brain is sort of an accountant's brain. So you go, you become an accountant, you end up an accountant for a bunch of zoos because you're living your best life and you're down in Tampa, Florida, and you're just watching that there's so much need for big animals just to have a place to go. So my friend, Sue Steffens, who really isn't my friend, so you can give anyway, this accountant in Tampa, Tampa, Florida, saw this, started basically a nonprofit to just at first to give tigers a place to go when the circus, either they didn't train well for the circus or stuff like that. Uh, They got hurricaned out. They now own a ton of land in central Alabama away from all the tourists, which makes raising money really hard, but it's an organization called Mm -hmm. tigers for tomorrow. If you're ever driving down I 59 in Alabama, it's fascinating. You get tigers, you got wolves, you have all sorts of cool animals, but this is a very, very expensive life to lead and it is a life of passion she's following her passion she has her whole family working there it's an amazing place to visit it's an amazing place to give to and they didn't get a netflix special so they didn't tigersfortomorrow.org they do things the right way there jason and it is just an amazing place to visit it's an even better place to give to so for your as your viewers and listeners continue to kick your butts on this challenge which no one's surprised by that. Let's be honest, but this is just another great place for the money to go to. That's fantastic. You heard it right there. We'll be sure to put a link for that in the show notes as well. You can divide that money half to the school that Lou's helping out with half to the, the charity there for animal rescue. And I encourage you in both of those, please put Lou Whiteman is a great big nerd in the comments boxes there. It's on my business card, Jason. So Lou, I just want to say thank you for coming on, and I'm sure we'll have you back on again. Jokes aside, two of my favorite people in the world, always fun, whether or not we're recording or not, to have a conversation with you guys. Glad to be here. Thanks, Lou. Appreciate that, Lou. Hey, Jeff, we did it, buddy. We did. Once again, we have talked about things. And as always, too, just a reminder, as much as we love to give our answers to these hard, important questions, 
and have people on like Lou that give their answers to these hard, important questions. It's up to you to find your answers to these questions about investing. I continue to be optimistic. I continue to believe in you. You can do it. All right, Jeff. We'll see you next time. See you next time.